Okay. Hello, and welcome to the Society for Armenian Studies podcast. I'm Erin Pinyan. It is a great pleasure to have with us David Sakadian, Associate Member of the Faculty of Oriental Studies at Pembroke College at Oxford University. Today, we gather on Zoom to discuss his new book released by Brill, Women Too Were Blessed, The Portrayal of Women in Early Christian Armenian Text. David's book, Women Too Were Blessed, explores the ways in which early Armenian authors perceived and presented women in both pre-Christian and newly Christianized Armenia. Evidence of women, their identities and agency are found in canonical works many of us know well, texts that we study, translate, the very texts from which we learn classical Armenian, those of course being Armenia's earliest Christian literature, texts authored in the fifth and at the turn of the sixth century. From these texts, David uncovers the incredible active role of women from catalysts in Armenia's Christianization narrative to actual readers of the texts that they that attempt to represent them and their lived realities. David, welcome. Thank you very much for the invitation. Um, well, there's so much to get into. Um, let's begin with how you came to this topic and how you came to reframe your reading of classical Armenian literature. Well, uh, as any young scholar, uh, when you start researching something, you need to find a proper and appropriate uh, research topic. So I thought I will try to find something that no one has ever ventured to go and try to find out things about women was the first thing that came to my mind. I uh, did my master's degree in Greece in Aristotle University of Thessaloniki, and one of the uh, uh, the, the strengths of that uh, department uh, was uh, training you in feminist scholarship and criticism of texts. So that kind of prepared me well for this uh, topic. And uh, of course, I wanted to write a wider history of women in the Armenian tradition. I started reading a lot about this, and eventually I realized that I should start from the fifth century because it's the beginning of Armenian literary tradition, of written tradition that has been preserved, uh, because most likely we had uh, uh, that sort of tradition before Christianization as well. But what is preserved in a written form comes from the fifth century. And yeah, this is how I started working on my doctoral dissertation, and the book stems from my uh, dissertation at the University of Oxford. Fantastic. Um, no, and you make that very clear in your introduction, this kind of new gender studies, feminist theory framework um, that is the first to kind of look at these, these texts. Like I said, we, we all know, we all read, they're very much embedded into not just Armenian studies um, and kind of the study of classical Armenian language, but also um, globally in the diaspora, um, these narratives that are very much digested already um, by children. Indeed, yes. Um, yeah, I, I should say that there were already some studies about women, and I mentioned this in, in the introduction, and I would say the most important ones were uh, by Zara Porosian and Valentina Galzolari in the recent years. They focused on different aspects of femininity and a women's role in society. Um, 
And I, what I try to do is I try to go deeper and read every single passage that mentions women and try to understand how a male author, because in vast majority and especially at that time, exclusively the discourse was in the hands of men and in particular clerics. So how these men, how these people in the fifth century saw the role of women in society. And it is fascinating because you could look at, uh, on the one hand, the representation, that is how they perceive, how they envision this. And on the other hand, when they talk about other things like uh, battles and uh, fire and other political issues they still mention women and because they are not the main topic of their discussion in that particular passage we learn quite a few interesting things about the life of women so it's not much but still we can get glimpses of what women actually did in in the fifth century in the fourth and fifth century yeah that's fun let's get into that because that's um this is a huge distinction that you kind of make and it structures your book actually um this careful identification of what what your sources tell you specifically between pure representations um of women by these fifth and sixth century clerics and then their lived realities and i um and you kind of go through the social strata in fact not just of um and ones that, you know, are on the tips of our tongues, but also um, women in public uh, and private spaces, royalty. Yes. So I um, structured the book. Uh, it is divided into three parts. The first part is the context, the historical context. And I think one of the uh, innovations uh, that I try to introduce is this, the contextualization of the fifth century texts. So we usually study uh, this text from the perspective of the political history and how the Armenian church um, became stronger and stronger after the abolition of the Arsacid kingdom in 428. But it is important to understand that um, the Alphabet was created, first of all, because uh, Christianity didn't uh, have the stronghold of the Armenian society at the time. So we needed the script to translate the text from Greek and Syriac to make it more accessible to people. Which means that the Armenians, despite what Agathangelos says, that hundreds of thousands were converted overnight, despite that, uh, the vast majority of the Armenian population at, uh, in the 5th century were still uh, Zoroastrians, or uh, they, uh, they worshipped the Armenian version of Zoroastrianism. So this is important to understand that the texts were created especially and in particular in that kind of context. And that context definitely affected the way women are presented in this text. So you try to introduce a new religion. And in order to do that, you need to speak to people their language. You need to try and present images which they understand. And this is why we constantly have references to uh, Zoroastrian deities in these uh, fifth century texts. We constantly see the comparison that is drawn between the two. And we have a clear approach here, the um, moralizing approach uh, of the Armenian authors who try to explain uh, to their public, to their audience, that what is Zoroastrian is unrighteous and wrong 
wrong and what is Christian is the pure and the best one and the only way to get salvation in this world. So this uh, comparison is constantly there and the moralizing effect that where they try to teach a lesson, where they try to provide some role models is there. So it is important to understand uh, what the previous Armenian mentality was before Christianization and how the uh, Christian uh, church started changing this or adapting Christianity to the realities in society. So that's the first part, the contextualization. That's why I focus a lot on the Zoroastrianism, on the role of women in Zoroastrianism, and also um, uh, the the concept of gender in, in this religion. The second part is dedicated to representation, because uh, we should always bear in mind, we deal with texts written by male clerics. And the way they see this world, the way they understand this world, and the, the ideas that they want to promote are clearly a, their interpretation of what, sh- what is right and what is wrong. So this is why we need to talk about uh, representations in the first place. And uh, we also shouldn't um, forget that, uh, well, every person has some agenda when they write it. And uh, especially in the fifth century, the Armenian authors do not hide too much they uh, are behind some rhetorics and they just clearly say we want to uh, educate people we want to make them good christians we want to provide them with role models so this is one of the uh, ideas that Ghazar uh, Parbeti mentions in his history, that we want to um, uh, present the, the, the valiant acts of men so that men uh, would uh, follow the, in their footsteps and try to imitate their behavior. So it's, it's a clear, uh, a clearly a moralizing approach to this. So I, think it, I don't think anyone would miss, <laughs> would miss um, kind of the... The takeaways from some of these stories um yeah. even reading your your book kind of brought back some of that like uh kind of facepalm moments of reading these histories for the first time where you're like okay like i get it <laughs> i get it like good bad christians or astrian you know evil <laughs> um armenian persons i mean it's always this like very clear-cut line i feel between uh yeah. It's not unique in the Armenian tradition. I mean, uh, there is a Greek influence. You find this uh, same approach in the Greek historical text at the time. So it is kind of uh, natural. Um, but uh, this is why we need to look at this text, uh, first of all, as representations rather than a reflection of reality, what was actually happening on the ground. And... Yeah, and the third part is the uh, uh, lived reality or a lived experience of people. Because as I uh, said earlier, in some cases, the authors are preoccupied with men doing some things. And at the same time, they mention women as well. But women are kind of part of the entire uh, picture. They are not the focus. And as a result of this, we get some interesting glimpses. And I try to kind of dig into this and try to find 
every single description of women doing something and being in certain places. Like in one case, and this is the only example we have from the 5th century, we have an Armenian woman mentioned sitting on a throne. She's the wife of um, uh, Armenian Sparapet commander-in-chief. And uh, when uh, she she hears some noise coming uh, from outside uh, her chamber, and she realizes that her husband uh, was killed, and she falls from the throne. And the word that is mentioned, the throne, is not kind of part of the central uh, narrative story. But this small mention already gives us some idea that there was a throne for a, a landlady, for the lady of the household there. And there are many instances like this where you can find uh, very subtle details about the lived reality. So I tried to bring this uh, in the third part of uh, of the book. Yeah, and things like, I mean, thing, your um, kind of philological understanding of things too really comes through, um, specifically in this throne reading. It's It's not just... Um, what we can find out about the domestic spaces or, you know, you know, the, there's, there's just this one woman's interior space, but, you know, what was the um, spot of Petutune about, you know, like what was the financial component? Where were these people living? It was it um, palatial in any way. So I think it feeds both ways, which is, which is really fascinating. Um, to that end, um, you kind of begin, like you say, with this pre-Christian Armenia, um, and you begin, in fact, with um, with describing the goddesses, um, particularly Anahit, who features prominently in um, the the pre-imprisonment of uh, Krikor Luzavoric. Um, can you talk more about Christian and Christianized women, um, kind of in in history of the Armenians, I mean, we and and Armenian women, uh, because notably, um, some of these women in these stories are non-Armenian. Yeah, that's a, a very interesting question. Uh, if we if we look at uh, all the texts that we have, the references not only in the Armenian sources but also Greek ones, we see that. Um, especially the cult of Anahit was very strong and. Um, we have constant references in both Christianization narratives that we have in Agathangelos history, we have in the martyrdom of St. Sanduk and Thaddeus. Anahit appears in different uh, shapes and different um, uh, contexts. And of course, she is uh, presented in a negative way in comparison to Christian women. And this is one way of trying to demystify these Zoroastrian gods and goddesses and try to fill them with Christian images. Uh, uh, and in, in, when, we ha- when we deal with a female deity like Anahita, we have the um, uh, Christian women coming to replace them and become sacred. So initially uh, this happens to um, uh, Haripsime. So there is a clear comparison with uh, Haripsime and we, uh, we see very well that Agathangelos on purpose shows how uh, 
Anaid is a um, a pagan, uh, and trustworthy uh, uh, goddess, and Tripsime, on the other hand, is a real pure Christian uh, woman who managed to defeat King Tartat, Tartat, who was very famous for his strength and for his military accomplishments, all of a sudden is defeated in his own chamber after an eight-hour fight against this um, uh, very uh, gentle and uh, little uh, lady, Ripsime. But because she was inspired by uh, the um, divine spirit, by the Holy Spirit, she manages to come out of this victorious. So we, we clearly see here this uh, attempt to uh, destroy the old beliefs by bringing in the Christian images and creating some very um, um, uh, potent images of women present there. Now, on the other hand, if we, uh, if I continue with Agathangelos, we see that he doesn't only present um, some idealized uh, women who uh, dedicated their lives to um, uh, God, and he at the same time introduces real women. Armenian queen is there, Armenian princess is there, and the daughters and wives of the nobility are present there in very important uh, events. So we have these two um, uh, approaches. On the one hand, the idealized image of a Christian woman, and on the other hand, real actual women who are also Christian now, and they tried to change uh, the society. They contribute as much as they can. And here comes the link to Zoroastrianism. So in my understanding, if you look at Zoroastrian religion, gender doesn't play an important role there. We have deities, female and male, on both sides of the camp. So you have the powers of evil and the powers of uh, kindness and goodness, and you have both male and female deities there. This is uh, also very convenient in the Armenian language. We don't have the distinction between the gender. So in this case, again, in the mentality of people, gender does not play an important role. It's rather who you are, what you represent, the values that you represent. So if you read very carefully through all these texts, we could clearly see some sort of... um, a collaboration, a description of a collaboration between men and women, between righteous men and women who try to uh, bring Christianity um, uh, into forefront and try to promote the ideas of Christianity. So the Armenian authors are trying to bring in both sacred holy women and at the same time real actual women uh, who uh, are next to them. Like in Ghazar Parpetis' uh, uh, history, we have actual women who educate their children, who try to uh, help their husbands uh, in, in the household. And this is another important thing. Uh, I mentioned this in the book, that uh, we shouldn't forget about uh, the structure of the Armenian society. So you normally see Armenian uh, nobility living in some fortresses, in some remote uh, areas. So urban landscape is not very uh, strongly present, especially in the 4th, 5th century. So we don't have many cities. And uh, the vast majority of the nobility uh, lives in uh, secluded areas. And then we have constant description of men uh, fighting some wars or um, uh, uh, joining some armies or doing some hunting. This is a popular... Uh, pastime 
And then you think, so... Let's start talking about men. Men doing things. (laughs) Yes. And this is what the authors are preoccupied with. But then at the same time, we need to understand. We need to have an economy. We need to have... uh, We we have a household. So what is... Who's uh, doing everything there? Who is uh, contributing to the production of wine, which they always speak about, the fine wine they were drinking, and everything else within the household? And it is, uh, I think, obvious to me um, uh, that women, the the land uh, ladies, the uh, the the usually the the oldest lady in the household, who is the head of the um, uh, family, she's the one who um, manages the entire household. And when we say the household, it's not just the, the castle, the, the fortress where they live, but it's also the lands around it, because uh, we have an agricultural economy, primarily. And if men are absent all the time, if they are constantly uh, fighting the wars, it is only uh, reasonable to assume that the entire economy is based on the shoulders of the woman in the in the household. So in that sense, we see again some sort of a collaboration and cooperation. This is not some, that, uh, something that the authors are interested in talking about. They talk about the, the uh, public space, uh, politics, and that sort of thing. But in the uh, background, we see this happening a very important role that women play in society. Exactly. And I find, I find that beyond um, looking at the public space, your, your reading of these texts, um, because you are reading um, four, I think five, um, both historical or what are self-called Papnitians, history, mm-hmm. histories, and then um, other sources as well. Um, but you're also putting these women... Uh, authored by different men in conversation with each other. Um, so one of the fascinating things about reading your book is that in one, you know, in one sentence we have a brilliant comparison between Sanduk and Antripsime or Kostrovaduk. We have we have these great comparisons that um, perhaps the authors kept in mind as they were writing, um, but you certainly bring those to the fore. Yeah, um, I think uh, the, the concept of intertextuality is present in all of these works. Uh, these texts were not just created out of nowhere. All the Armenian authors, especially in the 5th century, are well-read in different histories uh, and different theological treatises written by the Greeks and the Syriac uh, church fathers. And this is a a very important uh, element in their writing as well. So we have constant references both to those works, uh, like the works of John Chrysostom, uh, Basil of Caesarea, or Afrad and St. Ephraim, uh, but at the same time, of course, references to the Bible, uh, both the New and Old Testament and other works. So it's a kind of mosaic. It's a kind of um, uh, um, uh, 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 a mosaic of different narratives brought together to tell one story that they want to, to, to present. But the very interesting thing is it's done creatively. And this is something that I uh, try to point out the, uh, in, in the book uh, if, if we look at the Greek and Syriac church fathers of the fourth, uh, third, fourth centuries, uh, who influenced a lot the Armenian uh, ecclesiastical authorities uh, in the in the fifth century, 
they, in their vast majority, uh, have very negative view of women. So women are constantly uh, uh, degraded, denigrated, presented as secondary, presented as um, uh, descendants of Eve. So they have to pay the price that Eve uh, kind of uh, transgressed. So, uh, yeah, this approach is very well uh, presented in in the Greek and uh, Syriac text. When you look at the Armenian text, the Armenian authors, knowing very well all of this, they kind of skip this negative depiction of women. And this is done consciously, I think. This is my interpretation. This is done consciously. If you have a society, and this here again comes the, the Zoroastrian mentality, the customary laws that the Armenians lived by at the time, in, in, in their mentality, uh, you have men and women working together. There is no distinction that women are worse than men. It's not part of their uh, understanding of the world. So when Christianity comes, they sort of skip this bit. They do not uh, reproduce what the Greek church fathers, especially John Chrysostom, who was so influential in Armenia uh, at the time, they do not reproduce their negative discourse on women. On the contrary, we see constantly uh, uh, the representation and empowerment of women because women are the ones who provide uh, education, the initial education to their children. And this initial education, of course, is linked to religious education as well. Uh, I have one passage there, a, a comparative passage on um, uh, John Chrysostom's uh, description of women who abandoned the, 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 um, the daily uh, luxuries and pleasures. And uh, a similar passage virtually, well, I, I think it's kind of, uh, if not copy-paste, but at least very much influenced by uh, John Chrysostom. We find similar thing in Ghazar Parpeti and in Yerishe. But there is a huge difference in the way these are presented. So Elizabeth Clark, uh, a prominent scholar of early Christianity, uh, analyzed this passage in John Chrysostom and clearly it shows that Chrysostom uses the strategy of shaming men. He uses women to shame men, to say, look, these weak women can do these things and you can't. So that particular passage is remarkable because it is presented also more or less in the same intact way in uh, uh, the Armenian histories, but with no shaming. It's just the glorification of women. It's just presenting how uh, women also sacrificed many things. Men sacrificed it on the battlefield. They are suffering now the consequences of the battle of Avarait. And at the same time, women are suffering um, and uh, they're trying to get out of this with glory, with uh, chastity, with purity, and so on. So there is no shaming or no negative attitude in this case. And this sort of creative approach to using uh, the text of four of uh, Greek and Syriac church fathers is really illuminating. Yeah, it's they do this consciously on purpose, and it's not in one instance. Uh, it's throughout, in all the texts of the 5th century, we find this. I think this is another um, interesting thing that, I mean, you point to in, in your framework, is that there's a huge difference between historical writing, because, of course, these early Christian history, these early Christian texts capture history, um, and they do relate events, uh, you know, real events like the Christianization and, you know, the Battle of Avadai. Um, but there's also a difference between 
history, historical writing, and what you say are carefully constructed literary works. Can you speak more to the importance of nuancing these categories and perhaps, um, perhaps more about genre and kind of the distinction between Papitoon, um, epic passion, hagiography, um, and these martyrdom narratives? So uh, in the fifth century, we have, as I said, only a man cleric writing about uh, everything that is happening. And it is clear that we see some agenda there as well. On the one hand, they try to write about the history of Armenian people in general. But the concept is to try and make a turn Armenians into chosen people. So this is part of their agenda. And this is clearly seen, for example, in Agathangelos text, especially in the uh, teaching of St. Gregory, where he mentions that the Armenians approached God. Interestingly approached because the holy saint women shed their blood in Armenia. So they become the intercessors between the Armenians and God. But the idea is to try and present Armenians as a chosen people to create a link with the apostolic tradition in the martyrdom of Saint Thaddeus and Sandukht. So there is the apostolic uh, connection also to Christ. So there is a conscious uh, attempt to write a history, but a Christian history. And I would say this was very much, uh, to a certain degree, uh, influenced by Eusebius of Caesarea's history, uh, which um, uh, tells the story of Christianization of the Roman Empire, basically. And this sort of approach to try and show how uh, valiant kings became very, uh, they were uh, initially pagan, but then they became pious Christians and how Christianity, the true teaching spread. So this is why it is very difficult to uh, distinguish, especially in the fifth century, between a history and a literary work. It's kind of intertwined. So you tell a story, you tell a, a historical, um, um, re, you, you try to describe the historical reality, but at the same time, you include so much rhetorics there, so much um, uh, intertextual reading of other texts, that it becomes a very interesting, unique mix uh, in the fifth century. So the distinction into a specific genre is very difficult to make. The, these all these texts are imbued with Christian imageries, all of them without any exceptions. Some of them, like for example, uh, Yerishes uh, history, is uh, very much constructed around uh, the sacrifice of the Maccabees, especially when he describes the the uh, battle of um, Avaride. It's uh, is mentioned in the text as uh, late Professor Thompson uh, clearly showed this in in his introduction to Yerishes. It is uh, something that you, you find both like from the historical point of view and from a literary point of view. The language is very beautiful and elaborate. They try to make some comparisons and uh, use allusions and uh, metaphors throughout the text. And in this sense, it's uh, the only distinction, clear distinction that you can make is with the church canons, which I try to make. So I, I look at most of the text as one category. 
which are both historical and literary. And I look at the church canons as slightly different because church canons usually are um, uh, adopted during a council and the council usually addresses the, uh, the burning issues in society. So when you look at it, you can try and understand what problems the church was facing at the time in relation to the members of uh, society and what sort of regulations they want to uh, take so that they could control them in one way or another. So there you have something like a document uh, which is uh, uh, devoid of any um, uh, rich uh, rhetorical um, uh, ornamentation and you have the histories where you do have all of this. And this is something that um, uh, um, Avril Cameron uh, discussed in her uh, many works on early Christianity, how the metaphor functions in those texts, how the Christian authors try to um, write their text using the metaphor to try and uh, convince people that Christianity is the right choice for them. Uh, there is also a very interesting distinction. Um, so. In, in Greek tradition and in Syriac tradition, in the fourth century already, we see a very big shift in discourse. And uh, interestingly, Avril Cameron mentions this, that the Christians lost their battle uh, for historiography. So more pagan authors were writing histories rather than Christian authors. In the Armenian tradition, we don't have that. We have the Armenian authors, that mainstream literary uh, um, uh, works pro uh, are produced by the, the church, and they are uh, both historical and literary at the same time. So metaphor is kind of at the, the basis of this and at the same time uh, you see that through this metaphor they tell the story of what is happening or how they see things are happening in society. Um, you, end your, you end your text um, kind of with a postscript um, and a bit of a positive um, call to arms in a way um, you've Kind of captured every facet of women in um, in late antique Armenia. From I mean, you discuss domestic violence, you discuss um, abduction and marriage. In in addition to these um, these kind of glorified positions, these moralizing positions that um, Christian women take in the conversion, um, but you call for. Um, I guess, continued study of this. And, and in these different critical periods, kind of as Armenia is in conflict um, in, in the sixth century, in the seventh century, on and on and on, where do you see this study of women in Christian, in Armenian texts going? Um, and ideally, how would you like it to take shape? I can see that already some studies uh, have begun and before the publication of my book as well uh, and after that as well. So we, we see that there is this tendency uh, to uh, research more women. I mean, uh, we we can't write proper history without writing uh, history of every member of society as much as we can, of course, as much as the sources allow us. So we can't just uh, disregard uh, uh, half of the population and just write about men, what men were doing, what men wanted to do and their aspirations and their uh, deeds and betrayals and so on. If you want to get a fully peopled history of the uh, Middle Ages, 
you need to include also uh, narratives about women. And it is important to try and give them some voice because that's another thing that has been taken from women. So the discourse was in the vast majority of cases in the hands of men because it came through the church. And so it is men writing about women, but it is important to try and find these voices. So we have Armenian um, uh, uh, women writing poetry in the 8th century. We have Sahak Tucht and Khosrovi uh, Tucht uh, writing um, uh, poems in the 8th century. We don't have much of their work, but still we know that they existed. They wrote music as well. So we need to write about them. We need to write about um, Armenian uh, noble women who contributed to the uh, erection of churches, sponsored manuscripts, uh, especially the colophons are very rich in this sense. And I, I have worked for three years as a British Academy postdoc uh, on the uh, colophons of the Armenian uh, tradition in the um, uh, 14th and 15th centuries. So I found a lot of information about women doing things. And my call is to try and switch a little bit the perspective. For centuries, we are writing the history of men and what men are doing and how uh, good or bad they are. We need to now change the perspective and start writing also about women because their contribution is immense and it is not acknowledged. And not only it's not acknowledged, it's also used constantly by the patriarchal societies to um, still until today to diminish their role in society. I um, recently, uh, well, it was already two years ago, I was invited uh, to give a talk at uh, Harvard, uh, a wonderful event about trying to build a links between the research in uh, ancient and medieval Armenia to what is happening today in uh, Armenia. And this was the first time when I started thinking about this link, how my research of the fifth century Armenia can help today to shape the mentality of people to try to uh, bring the tradition that we had uh, in, in the medieval periods. And I realized a very important gap there. Despite the fact that when you read the text, you clearly see this, like in Agathangelos' case, in Sandok's case, these women lay the foundation of the Armenian church. They're the catalyst. Oh. If, they, if, if you remove the women from these stories, no narrative happens. Absolutely. <laughs> no one has a divine revelation. You know, Krikor is left in Hodmirap. Like, that's exactly. it. Exactly. And they also, uh, this was pointed out by Valentina Galsorad. It's very interesting. Symbolically, the first churches are also built where these women were buried. So they both physically and symbolically form the foundation of the Armenian church. And the Armenians take a pride in being the first Christian nation. Fine but let's tell the story uh, in the right way. Let's try and present how it is actually written by uh, our, um, uh, by the fifth century authors, by those who transmitted this story. And he, there you clearly see that women are presented as powerful agents of Christianization. So let's tell this story. But then when you look into contemporary Armenia, we still see that the church in many cases, unfortunately presents it as a masculine endeavor. Like the gates, the newly built gates uh, in the Holy See of Echmiadzin uh, present only St. Gregory and Tartat. 
as if they are the two uh, uh, agents of Christianization of Armenia, while without Hripsime, without uh, her companions, without Hostovidur, even without that woman who is unnamed, who was throwing uh, the bread into the deep PTS to save uh, uh, St. Gregory, without these women, none of that would have happened. So I think it is important to tell the story in the right way, to present the tradition as it was. And we need to, uh, we need to celebrate these women. I mean, we are so uh, happy to see so many beautiful churches, medieval churches around Armenia. But if you go into the history of these churches, you see that in many cases, you have a woman sponsor. You have a woman who uh, uh, might have sacrificed all her dowry, all her money to build this church. And she was doing this not just for herself, but for her family and for the um, society around her. And they were women who really believed in what they were doing. And there are thousands of them. But let's look at the academic writing. Uh, How many stories do you you see there? We have some popular um, books, excuse me, which uh, appeared, for example, in, um, uh, in Armenia, about the the ten great Armenian um, uh, queens, I think by uh, Artak Movsisyan. This is good. This is a good start. But we need to uh, show a more scholarly approach to this, and it is being done. So, yeah, I want to investigate myself as well, but I also call for uh, young scholars, especially uh, who are interested in uh, Armenian history, to try and dig into these uh, narratives. We have Armenian women uh, present in the Byzantine court. How Armenian they are, it's difficult to say because they might be uh, third generation Armenians, but still these are women who play an important role there. And uh, we have Armenian queens in, uh, in Jerusalem, very important ones. Yes, we, we know all these stories. We need to tell their stories. We need to make them the focus of our scholarship because in, only in this way we can write a complete history of uh, Armenian people and not only. What do you think contributed to this neglected perspective? Because if we, I mean, as I was reading your book, I went back to you know, my, my Thompson and I'm, I'm rereading this um, um, you know, history of the Agatangahos's history of the Armenians, and um, it's there. You know, it's like you say, they're in colophons. They're, you know, they're on hashkars. Their their names are present. Their histories are not obscured whatsoever. So, what do you think contributed to this neglected perspective? I mean, clearly, many of us are guilty of of um, marginalizing these women when, in fact, you know, they tell us. And, and in fact, these men tell us that they were very important. Yeah, um, I would say it's not just uh, in the Armenian studies. It, it was throughout uh, a scholarship in, in the Western world and everywhere else. And only uh, with the feminist movement and new approaches to <clears throat> new approaches to uh, studying history, these stories of women uh became known to uh, to the public so it was in general the problem of academia it was very patriarchal it was very male-centered and it constantly presented this idea that the public space where men are the main protagonists that's the most important thing 
and it was kind of the perpetuation of patriarchy in academia. So in the 60s and 70s, this starts to uh, disintegrate slowly. And I'm happy to say that in the 21st century, we have made a lot of steps uh, ahead, but still a lot should be done. So uh, you could see that scholars in different fields now start writing the uh, the history of women. So women's history and gender studies have become, um, I wouldn't use the word fashionable, I would say more important, more significant. And it, it it's good that it's uh, in some uh, institutions, it's also the mainstream uh, research. So it's not just the guilt of the uh, scholars of the Armenian studies, but it was in general the tendency. And now things are changing and they are changing in a positive way. And I really hope that we will have uh, more and more studies coming uh, in, in the next years. So I know some PhD students already working on it. You're working on uh, similar uh, issues of representation. So uh, hopefully we will be able to focus on, uh, on women, give them voice, try to present them, um, uh, try to make them as protagonists because they are protagonists and they are there. We just need to switch the perspective. We should not look just into the political developments and into the wars, but also common, uh, simple people, people who live their lives. I mean, this is also important history. They form part of the history as well. Of course. Um... So now that you've wrapped up this book project, what's next? I know that you you mentioned working on the 14th, 15th century colophons. Um, are you developing that project? Or are you are you moving to the sixth century? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, at the moment, I'm working on uh, two book projects. So uh, one of so both of them are linked to uh, my British Academy uh, postdoctoral research. So I translated and studied quite a few colophons from the uh, 14th and 15th century. quite a few is an understatement. <laughs> well, uh, no, I, I, uh, there, are, there are still thousands of them. So this is what I, I, I could say. But I also found many interesting things from uh, earlier periods. So I'm not limiting myself to 13th, 14th, 15th century, but I go, uh, well, the, the, the colophon, the tradition of colophon writing became as a, a separate genre in the 10th century onwards. So we have very rich material from this period. And I'm trying to uh, uh, write a book. The first book, it's already, well, uh, halfway through, I would say. Uh, it's about the way the world is presented through the eyes of medieval Armenian scribes in the colophons. So how they see the world around them. They don't write a global history. Mm-hmm. They write the history of their location. They write the history of uh, their monastery. They write about their interactions with the uh, overlords, usually Muslim overlords. They write about uh, common ordinary people who come to the monastery. So in in that sense, it's very interesting because they open uh, some doors uh, into the world of medieval Armenian people and not only Armenian people. So that's uh, the the first project I'm uh, currently working on. And the second one is while researching this um, uh, period, uh, I found out um, that the text of uh, Tomamedzopeti, the history of uh, Tamerlane uh, and his invasions, 
has been translated by Robert Bedrosian, but this translation was based on the old Paris uh, edition. So in 1999, we have Levon Khachikian's new edition, new critical edition of this very, very important text. And uh, my second project is to translate this into English and make it accessible uh, to um, those who uh, can't read classical Armenian. It is a very important text because it is uh, uh, the only lengthy historical narrative that we have from the 15th century, which presents the Christian perspective on the invasions of uh, the Timurids, the Akkoyunlu, Karakoyunlu, Turkic tribes coming and occupying this territories. It's a fascinating text, uh, a very rich text. So um, yeah, that's kind of the second project. As for women, uh, in the first book project, I already uh, have a separate section, a chapter dedicated to how women are presented in colophons, what roles they play, uh, how they contribute to this. And um, uh, I have also... uh, I've been, I'm working on an article from Thomas Metopeti, how violence towards women is presented in his work. So that's uh, another uh, article which is already done. So uh, I, I just need to submit it for publication. I just want to review it for one last time. So yeah, the, the projects are around the Armenian uh, sources, um, uh, Armenian texts, uh, very rich texts, which are unfortunately unex- uh, um, um, inaccessible to scholars who don't read classical Armenian. And as a result, they are ignored. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I, I, uh, I think is, is wrong. So yeah, I try to make my contribution to this and bring these Armenian texts that haven't been translated into uh, English or any other major European language to make them accessible to people in Islamic studies, Byzantine studies, people who don't read Armenian so they could access them and use them for their research. No, and we certainly thank you for already broadening the field of early Christian literature with your reading of in Women to the Blessed. So you're already opening doors or leaving leaving doors open for people to um, to pick up where you left off. So we all thank you. Thank you very much for this opportunity uh, to talk about the book. Um, I did my best uh, in the book and I'm sure there will be some inaccuracies and uh, perhaps even mistakes, but what I really want to is to see some constructive approach to uh, to it and try to build on on this uh, research and try to research, as you said, about women in the sixth century, seventh, eighth, ninth. We have so many wonderful and powerful uh, stories about women doing actual things, contributing to society. And if we bring this uh, up, if we start talking about this, especially in today's Armenia, I think the society will only win. The society will only benefit from this sort of stories because we need this cooperation of both men and women to try and build a fair society uh, in today's Armenia. So thank you very much once again for this opportunity to speak about my book. Thank you so much, David.